0: Mind, Crime, Liberty Show, with me, Swinton Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Keith Preston to discuss, is war popular?
1: Tim. Well, I guess you have two titles. Is Does boredom cause war, or is bourgeois peace boring? You can also call it that. There's a great article I had to read for my political science classes, what I have a sort of love-hate relationship with, and this one quotes Heidegger quite a bit. And Keith, of course, wrote a book, Thinkers Against Modernity, which I like a lot, and although Heidegger isn't in the book, I would clearly say he's related to some of the thinkers mentioned there. And one of the things the article discusses is that war might be popular in modern, so-called sort of modern bourgeois society, say since the 1800s or so, because it's popular, and it's be popular because otherwise life is somewhat boring. Um, um, you know, mass boredom is a fairly modern phenomena. You know, in the ancient, you had the elites being bored, but for the general, the kind of like uh boredom that we experience, that's sort of a largely modern phenomenon. It starts like the 1800s. It really gets accelerated in the 1900s. Um, there are arguments which made that, that like elites are insulated, so they they like wars because they can treat their people. They don't really have the effects, although I don't think it's is entirely true. Um, for one thing, older elites, plenty of them had military service frontline. Now, again, there's plenty that didn't, of course. But people like Douglas MacArthur had frontline service. Now, whether or not like uh, Mad Dog, Mattis, or these people had frontline service, they didn't really. Um, but plenty of elites had frontline service in World War One, World War II. Um, um, now, elite one problem elites have is like the elites in Russia, post-Soviet Russia, German elites, Japanese elites, you can get eliminated. So in, they, in that sense, they they have more skin in the game than the grunts on the ground. But the grunts on the ground, or I think another interesting fact is, for example, in both World War Wars, you had age limits in the UK and Britain, UK and the United States, and you had plenty of people who went under it, lied about the age to get in the war, which suggests it's fairly popular, um, or stresses that they want to do it, and that's another thing the article talked about, like in the lead up to World War One, you had all these n- novels about wars being, you know, gallant military service, and today, of course, you have plenty of military films. Now, I know there's a sort of Alex Jones argument, which is probably true, that the CIA funds Hollywood's to make... War service popular. So there's always structural ways to argue. You're, you're, there are always structural ways to argue yourselves out of this and say that's the real reason. But I don't think that's entirely the case. I mean, you get Napoleonic veterans. There's some interviews and photographs made of them. They didn't. They seem basically happy with their time in the Grand RMA. Um Emilia Durkheim has seemingly counterintuitive argument that suicides go down. John Gray makes a similar point in this Mortalization Commission that plenty of people somewhat enjoy it. American Civil War veterans seem to enjoy it. Um, now, there's a TED Talk, funny enough, which says that, you know, soldiers and I think the worst part of Afghanistan fighting enjoy it, too. Now, he sort of reads, I would say, some enlightenment ideas and that they sort of enjoyed the brotherhood. They thought that. But they did say that he thought that modern society was um, alienated. So they sort of liked the sort of common goal of everyone um, fighting for one thing here. And that's actually mirrors what Mr. Everyone's favorite mustache man, Mr. Adolf, he had frontline service. He thought, um, he thought it was his time of his life. He actually disliked the 1920s. Um, so my question for you, Keith, is war popular for your average, you know, we'll start with the we'll start with the non-elites here, for your average Austrian or North Carolina loser, so to speak, which is what what the word North Carolina loser is what the article political science article describes. You know, one soldier described himself. Is war popular for those people? Because you do get the service of them more or less voluntarily signing up um, for it. Keith, what do you make of this? Thanks for being on.
2: Yeah, uh, it's an interesting question. And uh, I think war often is popular um, for a lot of reasons. Number one, I think that people tend to be inherently tribal. Most people, there are exceptions, but most people tend to identify with some kind of tribe, whether it's a nation, culture, religion, race, something else, political affiliation. Uh, And I think one of the things that people like about tribalism is that they like to have enemies. Uh, There's just something that is uh, endemic to the human psychological wiring that there's a lot of people who thrive on having enemies. Uh, people like to fight, uh, as to why that is, uh, who knows? I, I think it probably is rooted in evolutionary biology, uh, you know, for, for the species, um, uh, for the human species to survive and evolve over time. Uh, it had to develop a, a, a survival instinct and it had to, um, have a sense of outgroup enmity with things that threatened the uh, survival of the species. So I think we'd have to look to evolutionary psychologists probably to understand why this is. Um, but it does seem that people do like to be affiliated with some kind of tribe. They do like to have enemies of their tribe to fight with you know, for whatever reason. Um, one of the things about modern societies that we Black is that we don't really have the sense of tribalism that you find in more traditional societies. Uh, if you look at pre-modern societies, uh, most people identified heavily with some kind of collective, usually their extended family, their clan, their tribe, uh, their, their sense of place, their religion, uh, you know, whatever monarch they were ruled by or whatever. Um, and that gave people, I think, a sense of belonging, a sense of security, a sense of identity. And one of the things that a lot of critics of modernity, a lot of the more, I guess you could say, reactionary or maybe conservative critics of modernity, and as Tim mentioned, I wrote a book about this once. One of the things that they criticize is that they say that In modernity, people have things too easy, that life is not a struggle, and when life is not a struggle, it makes people soft, it undermines human aspirations, Uh, it undermines the striving for excellence, Uh, it undermines uh, characteristics like nobility and heroism and, and all of that kind of thing as well. And... A lot of the enthusiasm for a lot of that a lot of people have for war seems to be rooted in that. They seem to view war, uh, combat, conflict, as something that provides them with a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, uh, a sense of of, of uh, heroism, um, a sense of outgroup enmity. Um, you know, we, again, we can speculate on the reasons why that is, but it does seem to be. Uh, something that meets a certain psychological need that a lot of people seem to have. Uh, You know, having lived my entire life where I've always been opposed to war and uh, aggressive warfare and things like that, one thing that I've always been personally dismayed by is that whenever there's a war, although it's getting to be less like that now, but whenever there's a war, opinion polls show that public sympathy for war shoots up to 85% or something like that. Um, and, you know, I think that there's just something about people that people just like to fight. I'll, I'll, I'll particularly when combativeness is framed as some kind of, as part of some kind of moral narrative, as, as some kind of Manichaean dualism. Um, you know, for instance, I remember, uh, when the first Gulf War happened back in 1991, uh, opinion polls showed here in the United States that something like 85 percent of Americans were in favor of it, or at least when the war started. Before that, it had only been about 50 percent. Then when the fighting actually started, it shot up to about 85 percent. I guess everybody got excited by the actual fighting. But um you know, and, and, and I think that one of the reasons for that is that it was framed in, as this moral narrative where Saddam Hussein is like this bad guy. and He did this bad thing by attacking Kuwait. You know, of course, there was never any effort whatsoever to by most people to understand the backstory to that or the context of what that in terms of why that happened. Uh, but people just like to uh, frame it in terms of this, you know, good versus evil narrative. Uh, and what it reminded me of at the time was uh, when I was a kid in the 70s, I was a big fan of professional wrestling. And this was back during the kayfabe era where the promoters of professional wrestling really tried to make you believe it. Nowadays, they more or less let you know that it's just a show. But back in those days, they tried to sell it as a real sport. And what and they, they would uh, frame it as this good versus evil contest, you know, you'd have the face character, the good guy and the heel character, the bad guy. And people really got absorbed in that. You know, I used to go to r- live professional wrestling matches as a, you know, as a 12 year old or whatever. And, you know, you would see fans that would try to crawl in the ring to fight the bad guy and things like that. I mean, that's how absorbed people would get in this stuff. And I think war functions like that on a, you know, on a, more sophisticated level and on a more serious level, obviously. Uh, it's just something about this kind of uh, combativeness and tribalism fused together with some sort of Manichaean contest of perceived good and perceived evil uh, that, that just um, it provides people with a certain psychological gratification uh, that, you know, for whatever reason, they have an inclination for.
1: Well, that explains that. That's that's very interesting here. I, as far as the wrestling comments, one of the things I think you have the wrestlers. We, they used to sort of self-conscious do this. You'll have like characters who you have like uh, Russian characters, and they'll be going up against Hulk Hogan's. I think is a real American. I think it was the things, and he have he faced this sort of Russian bad guy. Um, so the the wrestling point I think is very much um, uh, pertinent there. Speaking of that, the mainstream media seems to love. Wars in general, um, and this is not—I don't think it's a new thing. This is—I remember did some research about World War One, and the British papers—they my university had a library of them, and they—they they loved the covering every—you know—they had the casualties, how many German, so they had the body counts and things like that. Um, but you know, the uh, when Trump bombed the Syrian airfield, I think one CNN host said he's now my president or something like that. they forget the exact line. Um, What do you think explains that? What do you think explains the media? I don't think this is a new phenomenon. I think this is a a phenomenon that's been going at least 100 years. What explains that? Maybe not the sort of tertiary media like the Max Blumenthal's, Ron Paul's, maybe not the tertiary ones, but the central ones. They seem they seem to in general like it. What explains that? Is it is it because they're sell papers is a sort of simple explanation or they get to sell a, a good narrative people like a story with a good enemy what do you think explains the media's love affair with uh, conflict here i noticed with the, the ukraine i mean they were sort of almost like it's almost gleefulness when they were you know about the nato uh uh no-fly zone and things like that keith
2: well first of all we have to consider that the media is part of the ruling class apparatus Uh, the media serves the same role in modern societies as institutions like the church did in older societies in the sense that it's an institution that helps define the social and moral norms of the wider society. And the media is not a disinterested party. They're not a neutral observer. What they are is an arm of the actual ruling class itself. Uh, And You have to look at questions like who owns the media companies, who has the controlling interest in the media uh, companies, what kind of uh, other institutions are they connected to, Um, you know, whose good graces do they want to remain in. So I I would argue that the media, their function is to simply uh, generate propaganda on behalf of the state. Now, that doesn't mean. That everybody in the media is is just a conscious liar. I I think it's probably just the opposite. I think probably most of the talking heads we see on many media channels are probably sincere in what they say. I I think that's particularly true of the mainstream media like uh, CNN, MSNBC, Fox. I mean, I I don't know about Fox, but. uh, uh, ABC, CBS, NBC. I think most of those people really believe in what they say. In fact, if, if if there are actually, if when it comes to actual fakers, you probably find that more in 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 the so-called conservative media like Fox. I get the impression a lot of the Fox talking heads are just actors. But the I think when you look at most of the people on CNN, for example, I think most of them believe what believe in what they do. But the, the thing is, the system has a Means of screening out people who aren't going to play the game. Uh, You know, obviously, CNN is never going to hire Max Blumenthal to be a primetime commentator. Uh, They're not going to hire Noam Chomsky. You know, they're they're not going to hire anybody that's critical of the narrative that the media wants to spin so what they do is they hire people who already have the same basic value system and belief system as those who control the media you know and even people who might be inclined to be somewhat critical of the uh existing narrative those people know they better keep their mouth shut if they want to keep their job you know they know that there's certain lines they can't cross uh a good example is back when the second iraq war started Back in those days, MSNBC was a fairly new network and it wasn't the definitively liberal network like it is now. It was more like, I guess you could say it was kind of like Fox News light, although it was never as, as neoconish as Fox News. But at one point they hired Phil Donahue to do a program uh, and they were on the verge of hiring Jesse Ventura. They already had a contract with him uh, to do a program as well. Well, they fired Phil Donahue for coming out against the war in Iraq. And Jesse Ventura came out against the war in Iraq before his program started. And rather than let Jesse Ventura go on the air, they just bought him out of his contract. They paid him what they owed him millions of dollars for a three year contract. uh, they had, uh, and then let him out of his contract rather than let him on the air. You know, that's that's how much uh, MSNBC wanted to control the narrative about the first Iraq war and prevent anti-war voices from being on their network. Right, now, the question is, why? why? Why is it that important to them? Well, the reason is obvious, you know, it because the points of view that are presented on these networks represent the points of view of those who own the networks, who have controlling interest in the networks, and those whom the networks are dependent on, For everything from broadcast licensing to access to the key information, Um, I think a lot of the networks have connections to the intelligence services and what's called the deep State and and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, these institutions, media institutions, don't exist independently of all these other institutions. Uh, And that's why you see such enthusiasm for war uh, on on, on the mainstream networks, I, I do think it's interesting that the one time MSNBC ever said anything good about Trump is when he bombed Syria. Uh, and I think that that represents the value system of the people who work for and, and own and operate a network like MSNBC. You know, they basically you know, share the values of the ruling class and, and, and essentially are the part of the ruling class. Um, so they're simply uh, speaking on behalf of their own value system or on, on, on behalf of the value system of those who butter their toast.
0: Um, Keith, uh, Randolph Bourne, as you well, well know, said that war is uh, the health of the state. Um, do you think this was has always been the case? Is it the case that the state is in almost all cases um, pro uh, pro war? I'm, I'm thinking back uh, very early. Well, well, not very early, but early when um, the aristocratic elites were historically engaged in um, in war, and and uh, well, back in the Middle Ages, you had kings fighting on battlefields. Um, obviously, today though, you don't get any politicians or any major deep state operatives, particularly who seem to be on the, on the front line as such. Um, do you think that uh, war is then sort of more popular uh now with with uh, elites than it has been historically and uh either way why is it the case that war is health is the health of the state well
2: i don't know that war is more popular now among elites than it ever was uh i mean if we go back and look at history we see that you know much of history is the history of war uh that's a, you know, war is one of the definitive characteristics of history. It's one of the forces that shapes history. I don't know of any inherent reason to think elites in past times would have been more opposed to war than, than they are now. Um, the, as far as the reason why war is the health of the state, I think that's obvious. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a power grab by the state. I mean, why do states go to war? They want to gain more territory. They want to put an end to rival states. Uh, they It's an excuse for states to increase power over their subject populations, levy taxes, ration goods and services, impose military conscription, impose censorship. You know, all of these kinds of things happen during war, uh, and that strengthens the state and it strengthens the the you know power and domination of those who control the state. So I don't I don't know you know why anyone in the state would really have a disincentive to engage in war now maybe if you're in a in a weak state where you know you're gonna get defeated or something like that like yeah I, I don't really see the the uh, say the Monaco saying they're going to want to go to war with the United States because they know they get be slaughtered uh, But, you know, to the degree that you have a state that is powerful enough that it can be a competitor with other states, yeah, I I think that war is the health of the state for all of the reasons I just mentioned. One thing that's interesting, too, is that if we look at the history of the welfare state, we see that the welfare state tends to grow in direct parallel with the warfare state. Uh, If we look at uh, American history, we see that the times in which the welfare state expanded to a greater degree uh, or at a more rapid pace it was usually during wartime or around wartime for instance uh during the progressive era we had a, a, a significant expansion of the welfare state uh this was around the turn of the century beginning of the 20th century uh and then we also had the spanish-american war the philippine war and then world war I, and then we had the new deal and world war ii within a decade of each other Uh, We had the fair deal of Harry Truman going on during the Korean War. We had the Great Society going on during the War in Vietnam. And then during the uh, uh, war on terrorism and wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, we had uh, the expansion of public health care through Medicare Part D and then through Obamacare and things like that. And it just seems that there's a direct correlation between uh, the expansion of the welfare state and the expansion of the warfare state. And I think that uh, all of that serves the same purpose, and all of that is—it's a means of empowering the state, and it's also a means of you know, inculcating loyalty to the state uh, in subject populations. You know, like the—the—the—the the, uh, the, the message that's being sent is. Don't you want to be a good American or a good Englishman or, or whatever? Don't you want to be a patriotic citizen? Oh, and by the way, while we're keeping you safe from, you know, terrorism and you know, fascism and communism and all these other things, we're also doing all these good things for you. We're giving you health care and education and, you know, bicycle paths and, you know, free skateboards or whatever it is you're getting. Um, And so I think there's a direct correlation between those two. I I pointed this out to a leftist recently, and he said, yeah, you know, I had noticed that, but I always just thought it was a coincidence that the warfare state and the welfare state expand at the same time. Like, no, it's not a coincidence.
1: Yeah, Peter Hitchens and some of the other more uh, paleo-conish people make the point that, like, women only got the right to vote in, like, France, United States, Germany after World War I. They got sort of in factories, employment, things like that. Um, So lots of progressive causes probably uh, go up um, with the advent of war. I mean, yeah, after the Civil War, you got the first uh, (laughs) Civil War, you got income taxes in the United States uh, uh, and things like that. Um, So moving on to more, you know, big picture topics, uh, perpetual peace. I'm just, it's worth if, you know, if elites in the past were more interested in peace. I would say that elites now are more self-conscious, seemingly, now, now, maybe in the Middle Ages, they were self-consciously Christian or Muslim or something like that. Um, But but elites now do, there is an idea of like, since Immanuel Kant, of perpetual peace, like, you know, the United Nations, League of Nations. Uh, this is something that, you, know, you, you did have the, maybe the Congress of Vienna. Um, these are sort of modern institutions that didn't really exist in antiquity or the Middle Ages to the extent they did now. Um, this, this impulse I do think um, exists now. Uh, you know, we have, we have, you know, states agreeing um, not to fight each other. I'll go, of course, you just say that's just a Pax Americana or in the previous case, Pax Soviet, Pax Americana, sort of dual Paxes in different parts of the world. And that's probably a more plausible, plausible narrative here. But you d- but, but on the other hand, in the peripheral regions, you do see in the past 70 years, maybe the great powers haven't been at war um, directly. But in the periphery, you've had lots of, lots of wars. Like, you know, the, as Neil Fergus would say, the world of, war of the third world's war, you know, you don't have wars there. So in those areas, wars haven't got out of anything, you know, they they may have increased. Now, you could always say they're interventionists, the first of the offshore, in the same way factories get offshore. Wars seem to get offshore to places like Syria, places like Afghanistan um, but perpetual peace um, is perpetual peace uh, you know for the elites themselves is that a would you say that's a modern idea here and, and what are the implications here like let's let's say let's say if if we if, if uh, you know there is no more war in Syria if there is no more I can sort of imagine that um, do you do you think that's do you think that's do you think it's plausible here do you think there's a sort of demand do you think there's a demand a, pop, a popular demand? For wars you sort of opened up saying that's you know people states like enemies groups of people like enemies seems like there is a popular demand for war um and this is this is one of the ways in which i think you know the sort of wilsonian dream which i think the marxists in a backhanded way at least buy into it because uh, i i remember reading a land saying that like the you know the um the the, the uh, they should, instead of fighting each other they should the, the soldiers of germany soldiers of russia should uh uh, uh unite in a, a trade union against the war i think that might have been an anti war oh, that might be luxembourg who said that i forget exactly who said that um but there does seem to be there does seem to be popularity here and perpetual peace at times seems imposed from the top like at the congress of vienna would you would you take that would you do you think do you think peace is imposed from the top or do you think peace is more imposed from the bottom is not this a modern idea he, sorry for the scattered question here. It's more of a comment. Um, do you have any comments on on the idea of perpetual peace um, either way? Yeah,
2: he, Yeah. well, first of all, we have to remember that during World War II, uh, atomic weapons were invented, and the impact of atomic weapons is that it raises the cost of war to essentially make interstate war cost prohibitive. Um that, that, that I think, has been a major reason why we haven't seen more major power wars of the kind we saw during the two world wars, um, because the the weaponry that is available now is so self-destructive, the costs are extremely high. Now, obviously, another reason for um, the decline in warfare in the 20th century, the latter part of the 20th century, was, as you said, Pox Americana. Right. Uh, you know, the United States essentially played the same role in the world as Rome, as ancient Rome, uh, in the sense of being the kind of Hobbesian Leviathan that's you know, keeping the peace uh, in terms of major power warfare. And for a time, you had the Soviet, um, Pop sovietus or whatever it would be called, um, as well. Um, at the same time, you know, the American state was also itself very warlike. I mean, if you look at the. Uh, record of American military interventions during the Cold War and post-Cold War period. You know, I mean, how many countries have there been that the United States did not invade or subvert or engineer a coup in or subsidize an insurgency in or or prop up a puppet ruler or something like that? You know, I mean, the the number of countries where the United States did that probably reaches into the hundreds. Uh, So... Um, you know, we we did have the United States as this kind of Pax uh, Americana uh, in the, during the second half of the 20th century on into the early 21st century, and only in the last few years has it started has that started to decline. And you know now we're moving more to a multipolar world like we had prior World War One. Um, but I think, though, in the case of the United States, I think that the Vietnam War was an extremely pivotal time period, um, I've often said that the anti-Vietnam War movement is probably one of the most important movements in American history. Uh, And the reason I say that is because it had the effect of delegitimizing imperialist war uh, in the eyes of ordinary Americans um, in a way that you wouldn't have seen before. Um, the long-standing impact of the Vietnam War on American culture, even now, 50 plus years later, 50, 60 years later, is that Americans typically will not accept international warfare if there's any cost to themselves. Uh, you know, nowadays the draft is politically impossible. There's very limited support for the draft. The draft hasn't existed since Vietnam. Um, Americans would never stand for any special war taxes or war rationing and the things that were commonplace say during World War One or World War II. Uh And if, and Americans will not accept casualties on their own side. I remember um, in when Iraq and Afghanistan were going on, you know once the casualty level got to be about a thousand Americans, Americans were saying, oh no, you know this has gone too far, you know this is a quagmire, maybe this is a bad idea. I mean a thousand casualties was nothing, you know. I mean, the United States had something like four hundred thousand deaths in World War Two and, and and that was nothing compared to most of the other participants in World War Two. Um so And
1: and to add that, the US population is double what it was in World War Two. So as a percentage that's even higher.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I and I think the reason for that is that uh, Part of it, I think, ironically had to do with the role of the media in the Vietnam War. I mean, I was a little kid during the Vietnam War, and I remember sitting at the dinner table with my parents watching the Vietnam War on TV. And I think people got to see for the first time what war was really like. Uh, And I think that had the effect of turning a lot of people against it. In fact, that's one reason now why the Pentagon has so many restrictions on access of the media to combat zones and things like that, uh, because they know the effect that it has on on public opinion. Um, So I think that also starting in the 1960s, for the first time in history, we had post-scarcity societies. Like, if we go back and look at the old left, the left as it was before World War II, what was the old left worried about? It was the labor left. They were worried about bread and butter issues, economics. If we look at the left that came out of the post-war era, what were they worried about? Well, they could have cared less about economics. They were worried about, you know, civil rights, gay rights, women's rights, environmentalism, and opposition to the Vietnam War. Right, so the, the point being is that when you live in a post-scarcity society where most people have bread and butter, um, then you can start worrying about other issues. Um, and I think for the, you've had a lot of people in the 1960s and 70s who, for the first time in history, had lived in a relatively affluent society. I think the United States was a society during that time period that for the First time in history, we had a, a working class that could live like an upper middle class. And when people start living comfortably, they started they start uh, thinking about other things. They start thinking, well, you know, why should we go to war and fight on behalf of the state? You know, why, why should I want to get killed in Vietnam or Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere like that? Uh, I think that that's one of the effects that that, you know, the, the circumstances of that time period had. Uh, but I do think, though, that it, it, it that doesn't do away with the human psychological proclivity for tribalism, for, uh, you know, for outgroup enmity, uh, for the, the appeal that Manichaean moral narratives have. And I think the way that the ruling class has has responded to that is they have more or less tried to make war into a video game. Uh, I, I noticed that during the first Gulf War back in the early 90s, you know, they would show the uh, footage of the missile attacks on CNN and, you know, they, they would just sort of framed it like it was a video game or something like that. Uh, and that's kind of how they sell it now. Like, I've, you know, I've talked to people who are military veterans and combat veterans about this, and they say in the U.S. military now that most of the heavy lifting is done by the special forces, you know, the very elite special units or by foreign troops or by mercenaries like the um, blackwater or whatever it's called now academy you know those are the people that do the real fighting or it's done with technology it's done with drones and and that kind of stuff uh whereas you know, like a friend of mine who's a, a veteran told me he said most of the military is just a combination of welfare affirmative action and make work a jobs program rolled into one you know, meaning most people in the military are not actual soldiers; they're just workers, basically laborers. Uh, and, I, and that seems to be how the uh, ruling class has responded to some of these changes in culture, in the sense that they've just sort of reinvented uh, war as a, a as a video game and framed it as kind of a cartoon in terms of of how it's sold to the public. Keith, do you
0: think that the uh, media uh, was? Um was trying to be pro-war in the 1970s and 60s with Vietnam uh, and failed? Or did you or was there actually a sort of, rel- you would say, a, a relatively mainstream opposition to um, to the war? And if so, why was that the case rather than uh, supporting wars such as uh, Korea, World War Two, Cold War, etc. What might account for that uh, difference if that difference exists?
2: Yeah, that's really interesting because you did have anti-war movements during certainly the First World War uh, leading up to World War II uh, during Korea somewhat. But you never had the kind of explosive anti-war movement during that time period that you had during the 1960s uh, with Vietnam. And I think that, you know, there were a lot of things that contributed to that. One of them was the changes in uh, the water in, in American society that you had at the time where for the first time you had an affluent, you know, relatively affluent society and people had time to start thinking about other things. Uh, I also think television uh, was a big thing. Vietnam War was really the first war that was ever on television. And I think people. Uh, got to see a glimpse of what war was like from television that they didn't get from say the old newsreels and that kind of thing from uh, the, the previous wars so you know the, the, the technological changes the um, the uh, economic development that came in the post-war era I think fed into anti-war sentiment uh, as far as the media, uh, it, you know, the right wing war hawks will always say the media is biased against them. You know, I, that's, they, they, I've been hearing that my entire life. Um, and and, I, and I, I suppose if you're as pro-war as they are, maybe that maybe that's the case. But it's, it's not true that the media was anti-war per se. I, 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 as far as I know, the Vietnam War, during the Vietnam War, the media, the U.S. media at least, was not any more anti-war than they are now. Um, I, I think it was more of a combination of circumstances where, first of all, when, when the Vietnam War started, it was popular like any other war. Uh, after the Gulf of Tonkin incident, there was a, a, war, a war vote taken. The Gulf of Tonkin resolution was taken in Congress. In all of Congress, 535 people, there were two people that voted against it. There was one senator from Oregon and one from Alaska that voted against it. You know, just like when, uh, uh, after September 11th, when the war vote was taken, there was one person, Barbara Lee, uh, a Congresswoman from Oakland, uh, voted against it. And then it was like that during world war one and world war two. In both of those wars, the, the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, one person in Congress that voted against it was Jeanette Rankin. And she was the first woman to ever be elected to Congress. But, um, uh, So, you know, it was the same kind of situation with Vietnam, Um, but I think that what happened with Vietnam is that it became a losing war. Uh, You know, I think, you know, the United States got involved in that war, and and within a couple of years, it was obvious that the war was not going too well, and there were a lot of casualties. About 250 Americans were killed every week, uh, which is a lot compared to... The, the the more recent wars. It, it's not as many as, say, the, I mean, as uh, World War II and, and the First World War. Uh, but it was still a lot of people getting killed. You know, so you had a lot of people that looked at it like, hey, you know, what's this about? Is this really worth doing? And I think that fueled the anti-war movement. <coughs> now, one thing about the anti-war movement of the 60s is that because the Americans were fighting the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, you had a lot of, pro communism sympathies among the anti war movement. Like the early anti war movement as far as the Vietnam War was led basically by a coalition of peace churches, like the Quakers and Mennonites and people like that, and the the, the communist party and the and the other leftist uh, Marxist leaning groups who sympathized with the Vietnamese. I mean with the with the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong right so and i think that was true of a lot of the anti-war movement of the cold war period anyway it was more pro-communism than anti-war i mean it may have had a positive effect from my viewpoint but that's still where it was coming from um so i think that all of these things converged. you had a you, you had a, because the united states were was fighting a leftist government and leftist insurgencies in vietnam leftist elements in the united states started organizing the vietnam war movement because the war did not go well and lots of Americans were getting killed with no end in sight, the war started becoming unpopular because of the combination of cultural and economic and technological circumstances that converged at the same time. That just happened, all those factors together just sort of um, made the anti-war movement happen. And that movement, I believe, has had a very long uh, standing impact. Uh, and, And in a way that still endures today And I think it's something that the ruling class here in the United States is embarrassed by, because one thing I've noticed by noticed is that, you know, nowadays it's fashionable for the elites to memorialize and commemorate all of these figures from the past who were leaders in the rights revolutions. Like we have a Martin Luther King national holiday. He's considered a national icon. You know, he's like the second George Washington. Uh, And then we have, you know, uh champions of women's rights you know Gloria Steinem or or uh uh Betty Friedan or people like that or or gay rights leaders Harvey Milk you know the the Stonewall rebellion all of these things are you know either de jure or de facto national holidays or national icons but we don't really have anything like that for the anti-Vietnam war movement you know we don't really have um uh Statues of, say, Abby Hoffman or Tom Hayden or David Dellinger or Dr. Benjamin Spock or any of the other people who were leading figures in the in the anti-war movement. Um, In fact, even when you see stuff like that in pop culture, like I know several movies have been made about the Chicago conspiracy trial. And the way that they present all that is, is, is historically un- inaccurate. You know, they they water it down to make it look like the Chicago Seven defendants were really just, you know, if they were here today, they would they would just be good MSNBC liberals. You know, uh, they would just be good Democrats. Uh, in reality, they were they were trying to uh, they were rioting against the Democratic Party and trying to overthrow a government led by the Democratic Party. So, uh so, I think that the ruling class views all of that as being somewhat embarrassing, and I think that the ruling class strategy for selling war uh, dramatically changed after that.
0: Do you think moving on to a highly, highly, highly unlikely uh, direct military con- confrontation with Russia, How popular would you think such a war would be? Do you think the legacy of Vietnam would make it more a more difficult sell, especially if there was lots of troop losses? Or do you think uh, it, this is nice and easy to sell as a progressive war against the reactionary uh, Russians and sort of play it off as a knockoff version of World War II?
2: Well, yeah, that's a good question. One thing that I am concerned about is that the legacy of the Vietnam War is such that it's, it was now so long ago that younger people don't remember it. Uh, and I increasingly on the uh, among younger people, particularly more left leaning younger people, you see the lack of enthusiasm for the for anti-war sentiment that you once saw, um, for instance, with this uh, Ukraine thing. You know, it's uh, I know Caleb Malpin, the, the, the Marxist commentator, he talks about how in in this YouTube in this uh, YouTube phenomena called BreadTube, which is basically all of these left. Leftist uh, YouTube channels, you know, Valsh and, and Thought Slime and uh, ContraPoints and Destiny, you know, all, all of these figures are very, very weak on war. You know, they, they, they basically have pro-war or at least not anti-war views when it comes to things like Ukraine. Uh, and, and I know recently in Congress, uh, we had two important votes taken where one of them was about whether or not to send $40 billion to Ukraine. Not a single Democrat voted against that. There were 57 Republicans in the House and I think 11 in the Senate that voted against that, but not a single Democrat in the House or Senate voted against that. Uh, say, we also had a vote taken about whether to admit Finland and Sweden to NATO. Once again, not a single Democrat in the House or Senate voted against that. I think something like 18 people in the House on the Republican side and one Republican senator voted against that. And then Rand Paul voted present, I believe. Um, So what that shows is that anti-war sentiment on the left nowadays is not significant enough that a single Democrat saw the need to take the anti-war point of view seriously when they were considering these votes. Um, So, uh, yeah, I think that if, there was going to be a direct military confrontation between the West and Russia. I think you'd find a lot of people in the West, particularly a lot of younger people, even a lot of people who fancy themselves as progressive or left wing or something like that. A lot of them would see this as some, you know, uh, just war against fascism, because that's how the narrative is being framed nowadays uh, on the left. You know, Russia is promoted as the epicenter of world fascism that funds fascist movements and organizations and individuals all around the world. And they're conspiring to, uh, install fascist regimes in other countries, including the United States with Donald Trump. Uh, and they fund fascist media propaganda outlets like RT or, or whatever. Uh, and you know, Russia is the center of, uh, the epicenter of world fascism because they don't have gay marriage and the Russians are too religious and too white. And, too conservative and all of these kinds of things which inter- interestingly you have a lot of these alt-right people who perceive russia the same way and they like the russians because of it i think both of those are really misguided points of view but uh um but yeah i think initially it would be easy to sell a confrontation with russia to substantial sectors of the u.s population now i obviously a, a, a military engagement between russia and the united states or russia and the west generally would not go, go well, uh, it, would, it would be a disaster. It would be a tragedy. And I think if that were to happen, it's quite likely people would start turning against it, uh, PDQ. But I do think initially it would be uh, easy to sell. I mean, I can very easily see some of these YouTube characters like Valsh saying, you know, it is your duty as a leftist to fight Russian imperialism, you know, or uh, and, and then uh, then, of course, that's the line that you would see MSNBC and CNN and some of these networks Pushing as well uh, to the to the general public. In fact, if anything, if, if uh, I think you might people the people who would be more disinclined to something like that might actually be older people, you might actually find more older people who remember some of the past wars who might have a more immediately negative view of that. I'm not sure about that. I'd, I'd like to see some research done on that. Yeah, but I do think that's something I'd be concerned about. Uh, and, and also the same with China. You know, the the, the in the media today, uh, China is being prom- uh, promoted as as a as another you know uh, Nazi like regime. I mean, in fact, I even hear a lot of people on the left refer to the Chinese as Nazis, and they talk about how the Chinese are running concentration camps. You know, implying that say the the Uyghurs or, or some of these other groups in China are like the the Jews of of, of Germany. Um, you know, that that's the way China's you know anti-China sentiment is being promoted in some camps. And uh, so I think if there's a, you know, we have, we see this multipolarity that's developing now where we see uh, great powers emerging. You know, we we have America, we have uh, China, we have Russia and Europe is becoming somewhat more assertive. And then of course we've got regional powers. We've got Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran, you know, South America seems to be going its own way in some ways. Uh, at the same time, we're also starting to see a similar east-west alliance system, similar to the Cold War, where the BRICS and the resistance axis and the global south have sort of formed an implicit alliance. And then the you know, Europe and North America and the Pacific realm are the, the other side. Um, and so it's being framed as sort of a new Cold War as well um but i think though that you would have a lot of people in the west that uh, they would view a confrontation between say east and west today you know between america and russia and china not so much as a repeat of the cold war they'd view it more like world war Two. you know they think it's like the war of democracy against fascism uh or at least it would certainly be sold that way uh so yeah that's uh that's something to be concerned about
1: oh i, I would i would agree that that would probably be fairly popular uh because like the you know the I mean, you get people like Christopher Hitchens, who, what's interesting to remember from him is now, you know, he started his neocon turn and he sort of was defending against his paleocon brother, he was defending the Iraq for, and he was doing on grounds of like, you know, the support. I forget it's the Iraq or Afghanistan, the one they actually debated, but you could basically lump them together. He was defending on women's rights and things like that. So I do think there's an impulse on progressive cause. And considering the history, you brought up like, this is a coincidence? No, it wasn't a coincidence. Um, there it does, you know, progressive causes. You might you know you could easily get Medicare for all or you know, you could you could shove all sorts of things through in you know, a military bill. Just like well, like the COVID bill, you got like lots of other causes there. So there is a sort of desire for that. So so moving on to the final question here, yeah, you know, what would make war less popular? Uh, very few people want to get their house or a hospital, be in a hospital that gets bombed by, you know, an American or for that matter Russian Soviet. Japanese, you know, if I, if I do have one criticism of, and this sort of shows up, some some of the anti-war people will say, well, you only Max Blumenthal sometimes gets accused of this, is like, you know, would you want the Chinese or the Japanese enforcing the Pacific Ocean? Well, you know, first of all, let's get to that point before we talk about it. It's still more or less a hypothetical. They don't neither of them have a particularly blue water navy to do it. But even if they did, you know, there might be it might there might be the argument in favor get sort of competing dictatorship model where you know, maybe maybe it's better if you have, you know, society, different, you know, of different polities that people can move yeah. around and they have to compete with each other. There is an argument to me made that it's actually better unipolarity is actually bad and that multipolarity. It's like Iraq one of the reasons I think the United States could invade Iraq was that it used to be under the Soviet umbrella, um and now that they're no longer under the Soviet umbrella since the Soviet Union collapsed. You know they they don't have as much strength there. So there is a sort of that that's that sort of goes that, that sort of goes into the uh, tubes. And even the American buildup of Japan, as there's, there's a movie in MacArthur. And there was a lot of people that wanted to um more or less enforce a Carthaginian peace on Germany and Japan after the war. Um, but it was funny enough, MacArthur who was tasked with running them as a dictator wanted to keep the emperor, wanted to keep the existing elites I mean, this is sort of much different than, like, Libya. They they sort of just kept the elites because they're like, we don't want to run this society. We'll just run it through uh, sycophants of, you know, um, so there's we want them to fight the Russians. So there is a having enemies might be a feature. But to make war less popular, uh, what, what could be done to make war less popular? Got, as I say, no one wants to have most people, even if you talk about, like, you know, the macho, that kind of stuff, you could probably design institutions of, like, violent combat or like that you just have games and things like that you could probably design that you know you have extreme sports um um, and things like that to replicate it and you do see in bourgeois society you do see you know the rise of like parkour and extreme skateboarding and things like that uh people do you know think all sorts of things like that in particularly men but you know there's a lot most people seem to lose from wars you know like america you know, as good economists will point good right wing economists, I would say, will point out that America did not come out of World War II richer. It just destroyed all its rivals. So it's a richer, but in a sense, you know, it's only richer, like the military Keynesian lie. It's only richer because, you know, it doesn't have France or Germany competing against them, which is, oh, well, that's great. But, you know, once Japan and their economies come back online, now it's, you know, the same game. Um, so it doesn't seem like for most people it's in their interests. Maybe there's a psychological interest. What would make war less popular? You know, I mean, having more anti-war media, you know, having people experience it. Like, what what would make it on a general level? Or is that was it was that impossible task? It seems to be, it seems to be, you know, useful at least, Keith.
2: Well, the the two things you mentioned there at the end, I think, are helpful. Uh, one is having more anti-war media, and that's one thing that's come about with the advent of the uh, internet and and social media and all of that, it's now possible to get information about these kinds of things outside mainstream media and mainstream journalism. Uh, One of the reasons why you see so much hysteria by the power elites, by the establishment over, uh, you know, the internet supposedly spreading disinformation and fake news and, and conspiracy theories is because the, the cat's out of the bag. It's harder, for elites to control the narrative and they want to be able to control the narrative. Uh so that's a big part of their uh, hysteria over, over uh you know supposed fake news or disinformation and all of these things. That that's a not to say that there's not plenty of quackery on the internet and in alternative media, obviously there is. That's not what really the thing that really upsets the the powers that be. Uh so I do think more anti-war voices is a good thing, but also, yeah, as if the more people experience war, uh, the more they tend to think it's a bad idea. Uh, I know when Ron Paul was running for president, one of his primary sources of support came from active-duty military people. He was particularly popular with active-duty military people. And I had someone ask me once, they asked me a very foolish question. They said, why would military people be in favor of an anti-war guy like Ron Paul? And I'm like, well, because they prefer life over death, (laughs) you know, they're they're the ones who are actually going to be doing the fighting or have been doing the fighting. You know, they're the the ones that are actually at risk for everybody else. It's a video game. Uh, You know, it's just something on TV. So, yeah, I think I think that's a part of it. I I think that, uh, you know, the more accustomed people become to what really goes on in the war, they're more likely to think it's not a good idea. Uh, that was one of the things that happened in World War I. Uh, during World War One, you know, that was a, the biggest war in history at that time point, at that time. Uh, and it followed multiple decades of relative peace in Europe. And I think one thing that made a lot of people enthusiastic about World War One is that they really had forgotten what war was like. And not only that, but they weren't prepared for what war was going to be like in the 20th century when you actually had mustard gas and machine guns and, and fighter planes and, and all of the kinds of things that developed uh, in the 20th century. So, yeah, I think you know a combination of having more anti-war voices and having more people uh, being aware of what really happens in war is, is a good uh is a good thing i mean i think this helps influence public opinion away from this kind of thing
0: thanks for joining us keith it's been very interesting i'd now just like to thank everyone for listening if you enjoyed this podcast please share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us on popping on youtube the more subscribers we get the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material and if you'd like to contact the show for any reason at all please contact us at mindcryinglibertyshow at gmail.com that's show at gmail.com we we'll